0: welcome to the New North Podcast, where we investigate the unique sounds and perspectives of exploratory musicians. My name is Joe O'Connor and I'm a member of New North's Artistic Committee, along with Andy Butler and Callum Giffray. New North is a platform for musicians who push boundaries in their areas of practice. This podcast is a companion to our concert series, which celebrates the amazing work of musicians and sound artists, both established and emerging, who make and present work on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Head to newnorthmusic.online for information about upcoming events, links to recordings from previous concerts, and information about our Emerging artists Commission. You can also like New North on Facebook and follow new underscore north underscore music on Instagram for regular updates about our activities, including our upcoming concert, Vales, which is at Brunswick Mechanics Institute on Wednesday, June 8th, beginning at 7.30pm. In this episode, I'm directing the New North Scrutiny back upon myself. I premiered a new work in our February concert afterglow, which was called Five Moods, Five Poses. I developed this work with Helen Svoboda, great double bassist, and percussionist Tim Green, who's based in Brisbane. I'm very happy to welcome guitarist and composer Stephen Sokar onto the podcast as a guest interviewer. And I have to say that he was incredibly thoughtful with his questions and thorough in his preparation. So here's our chat from a few weeks ago. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to the New North podcast. And thanks for agreeing to be a guest host um, so that I can be the one in the uh, in answering the questions today. Um, I'll hand it over to you and, um, and I'm
1: ready. Thank you, Joe. Joe, on the 24th of February this year, you performed at New North's Afterglow concert, and you performed a new piece of yours for tape and live instruments called Five Moods, Five Poses, and that was with bassist Helens Verboda and percussionist Tim Green, who wasn't present, though contributed to the tape part. The piece had an interesting performance concept, which we'll talk a bit about later on, before we get to the nuts and bolts of, of how you composed that piece and, and the ideas that underpinned it perhaps you could talk a little bit about your earliest experiences of music What led you to composing and performing Sure so I mean my, my
0: earliest experiences of music uh, I, I suppose I you know I, I've always done some form of music you know I, I even did I think early childhood music, classes and and stuff like that um and started playing um the piano when I would have been I don't know seven years old or something like that and and a little bit later then started playing brass through a school um music program which I um did do seriously for a while and then lapsed and then kind of came back to it um but uh you know I, I suppose then the um um My earlier experiences, the things that got me into music in the first place were pretty unexceptional in a way, you know, learning basic piano music and, um, you know, a little bit of contemporary stuff, a little bit of classical stuff, Um, playing in school ensembles as well. Um, When I was younger, I did a lot of choral music as well and choral singing and, and, you know, in, in retrospect, that was actually a really... Uh, amazing way to experience some very advanced music at a younger age than I could have as an instrumentalist, you know. So I I was singing in a choir called the Image and Children's Chorale in Brisbane, um, which is a, a lovely um, kids' choir, and, um, you know, and got exposed to some great repertoire through that, you know. Um, just recently I've been revisiting uh, a couple of the Bach motets that I, I probably, I remember, you know, reading them as a 10 year old, you know, um, or trying to read them as a 10 year old, I should say. I, I remember being in these rehearsals and just sort of watching like the notes fly by on the page, had no idea what was going on, you know, a lot of the time, but still it's a, you know, amazing experience to be, um, trying to sing that music, you know, as a, as a kid. Um, and, uh, and I suppose, you know, um, my route into the, Professional music world was really through jazz performance, um, so uh, you know, again, sort of through school music programs that I started, um, started playing uh, in big bands, and um, uh, yeah, and in my own time, then I suppose started getting pretty into jazz from a listening point of view, and um, you know, started soaking up ideas myself that I, uh, over time, began using in, in my own playing, improvising, you know. I, I suppose that's a bit of a summary for you.
1: And piano was was your first and primary instrument?
0: Uh, yeah, certainly my first instrument. Um, at different times, I would say my primary instrument has been trombone. Um, I, I did classical trombone quite seriously towards the end of school in particular and and that was the instrument i did when i was doing music extension subjects at the end of school and um i had a, an amazing teacher ben Marks, who um uh, is an incredible player himself and someone's very engaged with creating um new music um as a part of uh Elision ensemble um actually just uh had Uh, my first lesson with Ben in about 15 years (laughs) over the Christmas holidays, which was really good fun, actually.
1: This far into your playing, uh, what do you work on with an instructor at this stage? Uh,
0: (laughs) Basic technique. No,
1: no, I I suppose, um, uh,
0: you know, I only returned to practising trombone seriously again a couple of years ago. Um, So uh, I'm definitely still in the process of, you know, just trying to take some basic things. To the, the next level, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so we uh, we did a little bit of that, just checking in with some fundamentals. But also, um, I uh, you know for too long to um, fess up to, I, I have been plugging away at a, a Chelsea piece for trombone, um, mm-hmm. three pieces for trombone, um, and uh, yeah. So that lesson, a, a lot of what we talked about was kind of some ideas about interpreting that piece, and Ben had some really interesting thoughts about that. I, uh, I think he's performed it before and written about it and yeah.
1: Joe I'd like to jump ahead now to your recorded material. Mm. You've released four records under your own name. Praxis in 2015, and that was as the Joe O'Connor trio. And that was with bassist Marty Hulebeck and drummer James McLean. And that was followed by three solo records. Confrontations in 2018 which was recorded live at the Wangaratta Jazz Festival. And that was a suite of pieces that you composed for your trio with the addition of Scott Tinkler on trumpet. That was followed by Problematic Pennies in 2019. And that was another live recording, this time of a solo piano set at the Jazz Lab in Brunswick. Mm -hmm. And finally, your most recent record, Soft, Which you released in 2020 and we'll talk about that one in greater detail in a moment but i'd just like to pick up on something you wrote in the liner notes for problematic pennies you said that you feel like your solo music is pulled in different directions by musical interests that seem to contradict each other Hmm. and on that i noticed that you have two bandcamp profiles one that houses your first two records and another that houses your most recent record and i'd wondered was this intentional? And if so, do you see your solo music as having separate streams? Sure. Um,
0: I, I suppose, you know, uh, in the time between the first record and the last record you mentioned, um, the the things that I, I would consider to be my, you know, the main artistic interests that I'm exploring have shifted a lot, you know. Um, that first album you mentioned, Praxis, was written at a time when... Um, I was working in, in performance models that were really coming from a jazz direction pretty explicitly, you know, certainly aligned with maybe the more, um, adventurous end of, of what jazz performance, um, involves, but still, you know, um, definitely those performance models were what, what I was trying to sort of work within and, you know, perhaps expand upon in my own ways. Um, and, uh, and the second record you mentioned, the, the one with, with my trio and Scott Tinkler, um, I would say that is in a way a development of, of the same sorts of ideas and, and concerns that I was working with um, on Praxis. Um, but after that, um, after that recording, um, shortly after that recording, that trio disbanded. Um, and that was that was I, I, for a few reasons. Part of it was though just um, a sense that my interest. I'd started bringing in some things that maybe were working on on ideas that um, you know James had, was heading in a bit of a different direction, or I was heading in a different direction to James. I think, um, and um, um, and in a way, then I think that was kind of the beginning of a new period of of creative work for me. Um, Maybe about a year after that, I started working on those the compositions for that that last album you mentioned, Soft, which is um, uh, created more as a studio composition project, um, and uh, and in a way is a, a, for me a bit of a move away from um, jazz performance models. Which isn't to say there aren't influences from that from that way of working. There certainly are. Um, on a couple of tracks in particular, I think. And, and in any one of those compositions, you could pick out certain things and think, okay, you know, I can see how they are um, in some way um, coming from a, a jazz point of view. But um, um, but for me, uh, I, I don't think of my current work as being jazz. Um and, you know, listeners might notice that I kind of glossed over Problematic Pennies there, um, <laughs> which was not ne- necessarily a deliberate mood. But but in a way, I, I uh, although that does live on my Bandcamp page, I almost don't think of that as an album release. Um, and uh, the reason for that is that um, it just happened to be a solo set that someone recorded on a Zoom. And I thought, you know, this is pretty good. And I'm aware that, you know... Um, often when you have a recording of yourself, particularly if it's it's something like that, that isn't optimal and it's not something that's been, you know, planned and agonized over um, for a long period of time, uh, they get relegated to your hard drive and disappear after a period of time when you change computers or whatever. And with that one, I thought, you know, there were some really nice ideas in that solo performance that that came through, and I thought it was quite a... um, a kind of a rounded uh, expression of you know some of my interests as a jazz pianist you know drawing from from different source materials um and um and so i thought i'd just put it on the internet you know i think I, I just put it up there as a probably as a free download or by donation or something just so that it's there more more from from an archival point of view um yeah
1: And from that, you recorded Soft, which I've listened to quite a few times now and have enjoyed that very much. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Released in 2020. And as you said, it's certainly a stylistic departure from the music Mm. that you had released before. Uh, The record was performed almost entirely by you and featured a a larger palette of sounds, piano, both traditional and prepared, harmonium, melodica, Hammond organ, trombone, zither, field recordings, and samples, to name Mm. a few of the. Of the sound sources Mm. Uh, In your liner notes for Soft You mentioned that you've developed these pieces Through iterative processes Of improvising and editing Mm. And that your aim was to create music That's tactile, immediate And always engaged with the character And the potential of each sound And those are quite evocative terms (laughs) Uh, Perhaps you could say a little bit about What these mean to you And what motivated you to work uh, In this way for this record
0: Sure Um yeah, I wish I could speak as well as I can write. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, um, you know, uh, in, in some of the previous composing that I'd done, I'd i been approaching it, um, uh, and, and actually there's, there's work that you probably haven't come across, chamber composition as well, that I've done, which is, you know, maybe harder to find on the internet because it hasn't been released under my, my own name. But um, with the chamber work, some of the chamber work I'd written and also some of the um, jazz composing, um, I'd been concerned with working through a particular um, theoretical framework in some way, you know. Um, a lot of the uh, jazz composition i have been doing for a few years was concerned with a theory called dissonant counterpoint, which um, which was um, developed by Ruth Crawford Seeger and Charles Seeger, who was a, a... So Ruth Crawford was a composer, and Charles Seeger, who was her teacher and later um, her partner, um was a, a theorist and they their collaboration kind of um uh... resulted in some really interesting work by her and and um, during my phd i was studying how i could use some of that theory um, so often there were you know pitch schemes and rhythmic schemes um, that that i was exploring through composition that would then be um developed through um, improvisation as well um but uh I, in terms of um relating this back to soft the, the relevance of that is that i'd often be approaching the compositional process um with uh, a framework that preceded um starting the work in a way um and um after recording the um the album with scott tinkler um where a few of those um a few of those compositions did have some element of that. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I, Yeah, I felt like I, I was ready for a different way of, of working for, for various reasons. It's probably hard to, to point to exactly what it was. Part, part of it was, um, I think, responsive to a sense that um, uh, I wasn't that optimistic about the future of what a jazz career would look for, like for me in Australia. Um, for a variety of reasons but um so when i started uh, composing soft um i i i was doing it in a way which was very uh uh very untheoretical i would say you know drawing much more on sort of intuitive responses to sound um and so Um, although it's difficult to think back four or five years to, you know, exactly what my process involved, you know, it might've been, um, so the the first one of those pieces I composed was one which ended up being called machine needle, I think, um, which might sound cryptic but but I had this little um, sewing machine needle threading device, which is basically like a little loop of wire um, on a, a uh, little handle and I was using that um, kind of like a bow for the strings so there's a, a, a kind of a sort of uh, shimmering kind of pitch texture that happens in that piece um, and and Really, the start of that piece was just based on me recording over overlapping versions of of that. You know, working with different pitches. But um, e- even the pitch material, which is you know, I would say it's kind of quasi tonal or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's certainly a sense of tonality and pitch centre. Um, uh, I didn't plan any of that stuff. You know, mm-hmm. and I didn't write I didn't write it down. Um, I you know I don't even know if I ever thought about what those harmonies were, you know, I just try things, which is a very different way of thinking for me, mm. you know, because I, I do have a, you know, reasonable amount of harmonic facility. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, but it was more switching my attention to, you know, to, to different aspects of, of the um, of the sound environment and making them the, the focus, you know. Mm. Um, and uh, you know in that piece as an example I think there's also this sense even though it's on piano or uh, harmonium there is this sense of, of breath as phrasing I think as well you know um, which does come across in harmonium playing it is a wind kind of driven um, instrument mm. but but that's something that I'm I was sort of um, not necessarily thinking about consciously but which was informing that I think this this sense of a, a very um, Relaxed, almost sort of a, a, a meditative pacing mm.
1: Yeah, and I think your focus on immediacy And as you say, the potential of each sound Really comes across in that first track, House mm. I'm thinking specifically about the interplay Between the background and the foreground material The track's underpinned by a, an, an undulating bed of sustained sounds There's a, There's an organ drone that holds a tonal centre And then there are these fluttering metallic resonances that ebb and flow. Mm. And then you punctuate this bed with some quasi-tonal Feldman-esque block chords on the piano. Each chord is is played and then allowed to decay until it vanishes completely into the underlying bed. Mm. And I was reminded of something that Gavin Bryars wrote about Morton Feldman and his way of composing. Mm. And that Feldman would sit at the piano with his head... Very close to the keyboard, playing a a mildly dissonant chord really quietly. would hold the notes down with one hand whilst he wrote them onto Mm. the score with the other. Then after a a pause, he would repeat the process and and make a new decision about a new chord. And that was the sense I got with your track, House, that each chord had its own integrity. Mm. Yeah, and
0: I, I suppose because of the spacing they do um, they, they do have to sort of stand by themselves in a sense, you know? Um, yeah. And that, that sort of approach, I mean, I think, um, I I don't think I had my head close to the keyboard, but (laughs) aside from that, um, yeah. And, and, you know, that sort of, that sort of very crystalline texture of Feldman chords, it's something that, you know, that's been in my um, head to some extent for years. And, and I think Feldman, um, you know, that's that, that more sort of, um, Intuitive process that he had is is kind of um, you know liberating in a way and and a, a really kind of refreshing kind of counterpoint to someone like Boulez at the same period of time you know where everything is 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 so filtered through a you know a theoretical lens um, and I think particularly as a music student um, uh, working in some form of composition it can be um, it can be uh, tempting to Judge your work by its rigor, mm. um, and uh, in my my research supervisor um, Thomas Reiner used to refer to it as technical fetishism. And I think it's a you know it's a good it's a a good term and and identify something that I I have seen you know over the years you know in various guises and that is you know um, people resting on on some type of theory or craft as a justification for their music. In a way that actually allows them not to have to engage m- with what sort of affect or or um, power that it communicates, um, and um, and I think that's something that I have fought that trap as something I've fallen into myself at at various times. Um, and you know working through through the process of recording software i was not planning that stuff and it was really you know uh, like i said tactile like um very based on the sounds themselves and without necessarily having so much baggage around that um i you know i feel better having come out the other side you know i i feel more able to just make whatever music i you know feel feel like making Um, But, you know, um, returning to those chords, I I think that the the process you describe is not far off. You know, I'd I'd notated those chords as a sequence, um, which I then kind of um, recorded over the, um, I can't remember, the cycle might have actually happened one and something times, you Mm. know, there's the, um, but basically I'd, I'd planned a sequence of chords. Um, and yeah, and play them as these other sounds were happening, you know, waiting for them to decay
1: A cycle long enough to be uh, imperceptible as a cycle Exactly,
0: yeah, you know, it might have been, um, oh, look, I'm just guessing here But it might have been 20 chords or yeah. something like that, you know and, and the piece plays over about 11 minutes, I mm. think, you know So if it did start repeating, probably not until like 7 minutes or something, you know, like, yeah
1: that's actually a good lead into my next question. Although you were working in, a, in an intuitive and a, and a bodily way when creating this record, were there any large-scale formal considerations for the making of Soft? Mm. Did you temper your, your intuitive with, with some planning?
0: Uh, very little planning, uh, <laughs> from, from what I recall. Um, I can talk about a few examples of that. Um, M- Machine Needle was firstly written as a short piece, um, and, uh, you know, um, Tim Green, who you mentioned earlier in relation to the, the new North piece, um, has often been someone who I use as a bit of a sounding board for new work because he, um, uh, he tells me what he really thinks, you know, <laughs> which can be like a bit of a rare thing amongst, amongst colleagues where, you know, you don't want to, you have to have a certain level of trust to tell people things that they might not be wanting to hear. Um, so he's always very honest about this work and, 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 Um, He was very positive about what I sent him, but I remember him saying it just feels like the piece might have been three and a half minutes or something. And he said it just feels like it could be like four times as long, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And I think there's, you know, there's some real wisdom in that in the sense that if the music is working in a way that feels like it's um, unfolding very slowly and is um, uh, almost a sort of potentially a meditative space, then... You know, three and a half minutes isn't really long enough. You know, it's, it's, it's not really long enough to settle in and to, um, um, I don't know, let go or something.
1: And this is a challenge that composers often face, having to extend the duration of a piece that already feels complete. Uh, how do you go about that?
0: Well, in, in that case, um, the piece, uh, if, if you listen carefully, there is a transition point around halfway through where um, it's definitely the same sound world, the same... Um, types of materials and the same sorts of gestures, but um, um, but there's a point about midway through that piece where zither starts playing this sort of um, uh, repeated low notes, and that's that's where the second half of the piece start, started being written. You know, so there's there's a, a sort of a formal transition there, but again, it doesn't come from planning. It's more, you know, the the music becoming itself or something mm. like that. Um, and the same applies for um, organ double um there's a yeah that's a piece that was written in two parts again i think and actually the second part came first um and it took quite a while for me to work out how to start it uh you know i think i i think i scrapped a fair bit of stuff yeah um and i'm just trying to work out what the last piece is i've forgotten um so we talked about machine little organ double strad um, Strad Which is the name uh, of the piano that you yes. used. That's that's right, yeah. Um yeah. Again, I think that one was a shorter piece that, that I made longer as well. Um and um uh, Yeah. And I, I suppose, you know, there there have been different pieces where I've started with an idea of what a duration might be and that's that's kind of guided some some formal planning to some extent. But I think with any of this um uh, studio composition stuff that I've done so far. Um, yeah, I've just sort of improvised my way through it, you know, at every juncture.
1: Did you experience any desensitization from repeated listening to the material? And if so, did that hinder the creative process at all?
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's an interesting question. um, I just have to think back to, um, to that time. There were certainly moments when, um, you know, the one I mentioned with Organs Up where I didn't really know how to proceed with the work, um, I normally feel like I have a pretty good sense of if something's working or not, you know, um, there was another track I remember creating around that time, which hasn't been released for good reason, um, uh where I think I did experience some of that you know um but even then the reason it never got released is because I never felt like it clicked you know um and um yeah so I don't think I have experienced that mm-hmm. that so much you know I certainly I experienced that on a much more of a like a micro level when I'm trying to um make assessments about say a particular chord um and, um, you know, I might play it over and over again and, and think, do I even like this? Is it good? Like, do, you know, does it have a place? And I, th- I think sometimes that um, those decisions are hard to make when you do what you're saying, you know, the sort of repeated listening and, and um, playing over and over again can kind of cloud judgment, I think, you know. You lose sense of that immediate response. And you also can lose track of the context that it's sitting in, you know, and often, you know, things have to to suit their context. Mm -hmm.
1: I'd like to talk a little bit about your relationship with the piano in general. Mm. Uh, In the liner notes for soft, you list the makers of the pianos that you used on the record, a Wellmar grand piano, an antique Ybach grand piano, and an antique Strad upright piano. And I get the sense that you have quite a deep respect for the personalities of the instruments that you use.
0: Yeah, and I think that's something that, you know, um, a lot of p- pianists, I don't think they think very much about that, um, partly because so many of our performance contexts, we just have to play whatever's there, you know. Um, but, um, but I think that maybe indifference to the particular character of the instrument um is also to do with kind of piano making history you know um the uh, around the the turn of the 20th century there were so many piano makers in the world you know it was sort of before live recorded music and the piano was uh you know a staple in in you know middle class and well-to-do households and um and there was a great deal of competition among piano makers to you know to be sort of the the cream of the crop I suppose and and you know, um, from the middle of the, the 19th century, Steinway was really um, one of the, you know, the, the the highest quality and most revered makers. Um, but there were so many others. There, was, there were um, incredible German piano makers, um, a, a couple of really important French piano makers, even English piano makers. Um, and, um, but... My understanding is that Steinway really did a much better job than anyone else of marketing their product um, and um, and as a result of that their continued ability to do that they you know they're the staple piano in concert halls around the world and have become the um, uh, in a way the the sort of benchmark for all other pianos um, and uh, part of the result of that is that there's been a um, a reduction of of variation between pianos made by the best makers, um, because their instrument is being judged as uh, uh, in relation to how close to a Steinway is it? You know, um, when in actual fact, the um, the difference between them and the Steinway were the things that made them special a lot of the time you know so um one of those makers you mentioned in ibach is uh, an incredible piano maker and they're not around anymore they they survived until i think the uh, 2007 oh you checked it out <laughs> you have researched <laughs> um, but they were making great pianos you know at much sort of lower volumes and that the you know the one i have is pretty um uh, yeah it's it's elderly you know <laughs> but but also you know but despite that, there's it still has this incredible sound, you know, um, uh, not pristine in any way, but but you can hear the the, the sound, you know, and that the Wellmar is um, has been my main instrument for years, and that's you know that that company was based on on Bluthner's, which uh, another great German maker, um, you know, which were used by Debussy and uh, Rachmaninoff, I think, was also a Bluthner player. Um, and um you know and they they were an english company that was developed because you know english people didn't want to buy german things after various conflicts and um um so the the piano aesthetics that that i'm referring to they're they're all um really old german kind of pianos in terms of their sound quality um and that's that's my favorite piano sound but it's it's increasingly rare to hear a really good representation of of those piano sounds because the you know the pianos are getting very old most of them um, that that were really doing something extremely different to Steinway um, and even Bechstein I also own an old Bechstein at the moment um, it's uh, you know Bechstein really changed the the way they did things I think around the 1950s and so the old Bechstein sound is very different to the new Beckstein sound which is much closer to a Steinway. So even the great makers that have persisted have kind of lost for me some of what made them, mm. you know, special in that time. Is there enough space for you to sleep in your house? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's uh, two, two of those instruments are in my studio. Yeah. Um, yeah, but there's not much space in my studio to do anything other than play <laughs> a piano. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's an interesting question because it's something that people, pianists, don't talk about, mm. you know, um, and most pianists don't know these makers and have
1: never mm. played them. And, you know, um, yeah. I'd like to circle back to one of the focal points of our discussion, which was your piece Five Moods, Five mm. Poses, which you performed at New North's Afterglow concert. And the concept of the piece was interesting in that it combined live instruments, pre-recorded sounds, and life drawing. <laughs> yeah. And for the listeners that didn't get to see the show, perhaps you could give us a, a description of the piece and uh, and the performance.
0: Sure. Well, um, the I'm not actually sure exactly when the concept came to me, but I used I, I had a period where I was doing life drawing on a nearly weekly basis you know there's there's a number of um life drawing studios that run kind of weekly sessions and um and it's a really nice kind of um almost like a mindfulness exercise you know because you have a a time limit to draw a particular pose from the model and um um and some of those poses, particularly early in the session, are very, very short. You know, the idea is that they're a warm-up to get your eye in. Um, so you might have a minute to to capture the um, the gesture of a person, you know, and a minute goes very, very fast. Um, so, um, so although it can be quite an intense energy, it's also um, incredibly focused. You know, it's one of the times I would say that I have the fewest, you know, uh, just extra ideas, you know, running around in my head or something, you know, very focused. Um, and I like the idea then of of translating the the type of experience of of um, of drawing with those time limits to a musical situation where duration is obviously, you know, a very important part of the musical experience. So, um, so I started then with this piece with um, with durations, kind of like a starting point, you know. So each piece is roughly based around the Duration of a common life drawing pose, and, and I'd say the most common ones are one minute, two minute, five minute, um, sometimes a 10 minute um, or 15 minute. The, you know, in the tens and 15s, are kind of long poses, I suppose, where you might have an opportunity to go more deeply into rendering or detail. Um, occasionally, there's a longer pose, maybe a 20 or 25, but you know, often 15 is the longest. Um, so, the, the piece that I wrote has um, two very short poses which were, they were supposed to be one minute, but the music didn't want to be contained within one minute. So I, I ended up settling on one minute 20 for those ones. And then there's um, a two minute, a five minute, and then um, I was aiming for 15 minutes, but it became a 14 minute piece. You know, that's just where the music um, wanted to end. Um, and, uh, and so I also then thought about, in the construction of the music, the different types of of energy that you might have as you draw to these different durations because like i mentioned one minute is a very intense energy you know you've you can't you can't rest and contemplate you know you just have to do it and commit um and so the one minute pieces for me were a, a more sort of restless energy i would say um and uh, so the one, both both the one minute twenty pieces and the two minute pieces, I think, are quite active in a lot of ways. And then the five minute piece, there's still a lot going on, but the durations are a little bit more stretched. Um, and then the final piece is kind of um, um, everything swells in and out very slowly. You know, there's there's very little. Um, very little percussive activity, um, in that, in that piece. Aside from a couple of, you know, I think Helen did, um, what's, what's it called when you hit the string with the bow? What's that called again? Uh, Maybe, I don't know. I'll take your word for it. Um, but there's a little bit of that. So, but I think that's really the only percussive element in, in that piece. Um, and I'm not sure how that translated as someone who was, um, drawing, but, um, but for me, that was that was something that was aiming to reflect the 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 intensity of the focus that you bring um, to those different
1: durations. I'd love to know more about the sequence of events in this compositional process. Mm. Uh, did you develop the tape parts first, and if so, did the tape parts inform the live parts?
0: Uh, yeah. So the the tape parts were um, were definitely first. Um, the first of the pieces I wrote was the longest one and um uh earlier in so I, I began working on these I suppose midway through last year so mid 2021 and um earlier in maybe during one of the first lockdowns I'd done a, a kind of a brief collaborative recording with Tim Green um where we uh I think he sent me something he'd record and I recorded another layer and or two, and um, and there there were some good things that came out of that, but not something that we ended up um, releasing. But um, but one of the things that he had done, which I really enjoyed with that piece, was um, uh, he'd taken a percussion recording and slowed it down in sound editing software, and it creates a, a I suppose a slightly degraded kind of sound quality, but in the process, almost it almost begins to sound like a. a like a distorted reverb or something like that. It's, it's quite an interesting sound. So, um, so when I started working with the, um, for this, this longer piece, something I was also interested in doing was, um, was using the piano in a way that basically sounds like an electronic instrument. I don't know if that came across exactly, but um, most of the sounds that I created in, in that piece are actually piano chords that were played um, and then the attack was cut off, and then the the wave file was reversed, um, and they were sort of uh, cross faded into each other. So you end up with something that is the the decay of the piano swelling in backwards, um, and and sort of um, fading out again. Um, and in a sense, the sound is very familiar, um, but also, you know, not not. It's harder to pick. I don't know if you picked that as all piano stuff when you were listening, but um, Stephen's shaking his head, which is, which is good. That's the desired effect. But in addition to that, though, I was also... Um, so when I mentioned slowing down, as well as doing that, I would be I'd change the rate of playback of those. Those uh, Essentially, I developed a set of samples, a set of different chords and harmonies, um, which I drew from with the rest of the piece, and, and I then manipulate them by speeding them up or slowing them down. So also then in the process, stretching the duration Um, and also working with pitch automation where I'd, um, uh, yeah, rather than having the piano being just a static chord that rings, I'd, you know, you know, move it up, move it down. So there's a microtonal element um, there as well. Um, and, And, you know, that then becomes... You know, for me, I get this sense of there being this sort of raising tension that comes from from a pushing pitch above where it begins, and then um, more of a uh, I don't know plaintive sigh sort of motif that comes from um, from bending the the pitch downwards. You know, and so there's a lot of this kind of crossing of those different sounds um, to create the the texture in that piece. Um, so. Um, I think in in that the tape track for that piece there's there's the piano stuff there's a little bit of harmonium um, courtesy of Andy Butler um, and uh, oh, I should say I played it but it's, it's Andy's harmonium that's been doing the rounds of um, these scenes for a little while and uh, um, and so I developed this tape track and then um, sent it to Tim Green who added another layer. Um, and I I don't actually know what Tim added, but it made it better. <laughs> I, I, I actually have no idea. But he sent it back, and I was like, oh, this is great. Um, and um, and so then following that, the um, the live materials then, I and and I actually think I kind of messed up when I wrote this piece. By the way, um, I think I overcomposed the tape tracks, in a way, that by the time I was planning the live elements, I was trying to work out how not to ruin it. <laughs> um, you know, like I think the tape tracks by themselves actually stand alone quite effectively um, as pieces. And um, and I don't mind saying that there was actually much more consideration given to the tape tracks than to the live elements themselves. But, um, but I don't necessarily see that as an issue in the sense that I, I have, you know, faith that I and the colleagues that I work with are able to actually make very good musical decisions as improvisers, you know, it's what we do and what we trained, trained for. Um, but, but one tension then that I was grappling with, because I've never really done something like this before with a tape element was, um, you know, to what extent does there need to be a, um, uh, you know, some sort of theatrical element in the musical performance that makes it seem like the live element is critical to the result. Um, and I, I did have this, um, this concern that, um, you know, it'd look like a bit of a cop out, you know, like I'd just be there playing a couple of notes, but it was obvious that basically, you know, 80% of the piece had been composed in advance and was just, you know, pressing play. Um, and I think to some extent, you know, that is, the reality of the situation but doesn't detract from the fact that um, you know, Helen made real comp- contributions with those live parts, you know, um, adding another layer and in particular um, uh, I think a sound which um, in a lot of those instances was one of the most active parts, you know um, and so the, the amount of space in those tape tracks allowed that to happen um, For my own parts um, with the exception of the uh, movement where I play some, um, piano, um, which is a richer Lip piano, great old maker. sounds like total crap. Um, <laughs> but, um, richer lip pianos I rate. Anyway, um, that's an aside. Um, but with, a, with the exception of, of that movement, um, I felt like what I was contributing, which was playing samples, um, through, uh, a gong with a contact speaker, uh, and also playing organ with a contact speaker amplified through uh, one of those Irish drums. Uh, I can't remember what they're called. That's
1: a. I, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. <laughs> Bodron or Bodron? Yes, 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 that, yes, that's
0: yeah. So I borrowed one of them from um, from Michael McNab, um, and um, so the idea there being that these sounds, which are um, essentially electronic sounds, are being um, amplified in a way that, that creates a, a kind of acoustic distortion, mm. um, if you like. So, um, you know, I, I was using like a singing bowl sample library and, and I, th- I feel that there's a little bit of a, um, uh, you know, a bias against these very clean produced sample libraries in experimental music. They're a bit naff or something like that. But I, I kind of like the idea of using them in a way, but, but, but distorting them at the same time
1: that's interesting that bias that ties into something you said before this positive bias people have towards rigor Mm. you didn't undergo rigor Mm. if you didn't create everything yourself yeah um if you if you weren't the absolute author of every detail it's Mm. somehow cheating
0: yeah it's true and and i think that point of view though does lose track of the fact that you know um music in a way is just a you know it's it's a vehicle for some sort of expression and some sort of aesthetic experience. And, um, if everyone at, at um, Brunswick Mechanics Institute was thinking, you know, what a load of rubbish. Did you notice that he used those singing bowl samples? What a, what an idiot. You know, like, um, it, it obviously doesn't, it doesn't have a meaningful impact for me on, the, on the, um, on the, I suppose the, the power of the performance or, the, or the, um, you know the energy that was coming across. Um, so, yeah, but it's something that I've also grappled a little bit with myself because I, um, I, I do think that 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 bias is interesting though because there's no bias against say using um, a synthesizer, which is again a piece of equipment that's made to to um, to play a very um, particular sound. You know, it's man-made. It sounds the same as every other synthesizer that you know people didn't build their own. Synthesizer a lot of the time, you know. I know some people do, and that's cool. But you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, and I think it's it's easy for a composer to think that more rigor equals better quality. Mm. You know, I've heard some composers say that they're suspicious of an idea if it comes too easily. Mm. Mm. If that makes yes. sense. Yes, no, it does. It it yeah.
0: absolutely makes sense. Um, and you know, and by no means am I anti rigor either. You know, I love, I love the idea of rigor. I just, you know, I'm tired. (laughs) Yeah. And, and certainly, you know, it's very scene specific, you know, there'd be improvisers who are very suspicious of systems that take you away from, you know, a kind of interpersonal moment, you know, Mm. um, because there's a, a, you know, an extra layer of mediation, I suppose, Mm. you know, intellectualizing before action. Um, you know, which which isn't suitable to every context mm. you know?
1: yeah. I'll talk a little bit about my experience of that of that course cool. yeah uh, in the 1960s when Alan Watts was traveling across the USA uh, delivering lectures on mysticism he would often talk about how softening your focus softening your gaze would paradoxically sort of encourage a, a higher state of receptivity and in your piece I felt like just the act of drawing softened my focus on the music in a in a really pleasing way. Mm. It felt like the sound was neither a focal point nor a backdrop. It was something in between. The listening experience felt a bit like uh, the oral equivalent of peripheral vision. Mm. How does that land with you? <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: well, that's that's interesting. Um, and you know, certainly, I, I gave that some thought. You know, as a composer, my um my focus was obviously very concerned with the details of the music but um but i was also very aware that the type of experience that a listener has of the music is going to be influenced by the fact that i'm intentionally directing their focus elsewhere um and um and i suppose i i wanted to compose music in a way that um facilitated the type of focus that you want to have when you're drawing but um but was also, you know, um, had had enough interest and integrity in its own right that you can experience the music without the drawing element and it's still a, a, an entirely satisfying experience, at, at least hopefully, you know. Um, so, um, I mean, I, I certainly think, though, that there, there is a, um, you know, you could make a parallel between even visual artists who are doing representational work, often, you know, squint, um at an object as they draw or paint because um they are uh able to see the bigger picture more they're able to more accurately um assess tonal values and things like that and um um without the without the distraction of all the minute details that you get and um, you, you, do you want to jump in there well
1: i just you've reminded me of your 2019 record pro- <laughs> problematic pennies oh yeah um which am, am I right? A, a lot of was was improvised. Yeah, yeah You know, yeah. they're
0: all, all, all of them are three three jazz standards and one um, very early
1: keyboard work. That yeah, I'm and in, yeah, lots of vocalization. I can hear you humming, <laughs> humming yeah. the general pitch contour of of the lines that you were playing.
0: Some sometimes, but other times it's just more of this like,
1: <laughs> and I you know I I sort of um,
0: it's not an intentional choice. It's more that I think when you're playing um the The history of piano music is kind of a, a, a very concerned with creating a vocal line on a percussion instrument, which is um, you know kind of a paradoxical thing to do because you're always dealing with um, you know a decaying sound with an attack, um, which is the opposite of a of a wind instrument or a voice where the sound is is you know carried by the air, a breath which which doesn't um, you know, decay in the same way um and um and because of that history you know so many of the approaches that you take on piano aren't percussive they are um emulating a, a vocal line in a sense um and a lot of pianists vocalize in that way and actually a lot of guitarists do as, as well and i think um it's it's related to that fact that they're um maybe creating um you know a, a I I suppose, embodying Mm. that concept of the vocal line in a way that, although it doesn't necessarily translate to the instrument directly, it does kind of inform the the concept of melody. Um, But it's not something I've ever chosen to do. It's just, uh, in fact, it's something I've tried not to do. Um, But, um, like, the music I'm playing on that recording is very dense, you know, there's a lot going on um, in in some pieces, in particular. Um, one of those pieces is uh, a piece by um, uh, Andrea Antico from uh, Frittolo or something rather. There's some uh, I can't remember the title of the work, but um, but it's a very early keyboard work. You know, I think maybe 15th century or something like that. Um, and uh, and th- so it's 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 early kind of polyphony in a way, you know, there's there's multiple parts moving, it's not, doesn't have the same kind of contrapuntal complexity of something like Bach, but, you know, as I was improvising with that piece, I was trying to, you know, keep multiple melodic parts moving and, you know, have them coming in and out, um, and um, and that's a really, um, it's a really kind of huge amount of concentration um, that goes into being able to execute something like that, you know, Um and uh and so the sort of vocalizing then is not it's not something that i choose to do it's something that obviously for for whatever um you know psychological reason is is a part of um trying to reach that sort of a flow state i suppose you know the 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 level of concentration that allows that to to be possible you know yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, there's there's so many pianists do it, you know, Keith Jarrett being the most famous example, I think. And Keith Jarrett's someone who I've listened to a lot over the years and been very inspired by, particularly early earlier on in my, my jazz explorations.
1: Hmm. Joe, I've got a few, I guess I'd call them quick fire questions for you. What's your favourite (laughs) colour? And so so forth. (laughs) That's actually a quick fire question on an art podcast I listen to sometimes. Uh, In in the days and weeks surrounding periods of composing, some composers really limit their intake of music, some not listening to anything at all. I know Ben Frost is an example of this. Hmm. Uh, For others, listening to other music is an essential part of their creative process. Hmm. What about you?
0: Uh, I think that depends on, you know, um, for me, the, the time when I do the most listening as a way of trying to kind of get ideas is early on in the process. I often find that once I've settled on um, the concept for a piece, um, it's more a matter of just progressing that by small increments and in a way that doesn't require that sort of spark of, of um, um, creativity that can come from listening to just the right thing at the right time. Mm, so, I, I, yeah, I, I suppose it depends how much time I have. Listening to music is often something that, that happens in my leisure time more, more than in my focus creative time. So um, if I'm busy, probably not
1: much listening. Mm. Indeterminacy. Mm. What does this mean for you today? You've come from the jazz world where improvisation is one of the main modes of expression, and I guess you could call that a, a specific type of indeterminacy. Today you're creating notated and strictly recorded work as mm. well, so where, if at all, does indeterminacy fit into your current work?
0: Yeah, well, for me, indeterminacy is um, very different to improvisation in a sense because improvisers, particularly coming from a jazz point of view, are so obsessive about intention. You know, and indeterminacy for me is uh, it implies more of an embracing of some sort of chance element. Um, so, you know, I, I think, I don't think indeterminacy actually does play a big part in my, um, in my music making, but sometimes, you know, it's really nice to embrace things that you don't plan when they happen.
1: When are you most likely to get stuck when composing? And in these moments, how do you break free?
0: mm that's an interesting one um if I get stuck, normally it's over one of the like a, a a big issue you know the you know the whole sound world of a piece or something you know um, sometimes I also get stuck if I've discovered some type of music that I somehow want to you know emulate or respond to but don't have the craft or the means to do it you know. That's certainly an issue for me with um, uh, with electronic music because I'm a total luddite and don't know how to use a computer, you know. Um, or you know, I would say maybe more correctly that I have a very limited range of things that I can do on a computer, um, which I'm gradually trying to expand. But I also hate tinkering around with computers because you know they don't work. And um, <laughs> well, they do they do work if you know how to do it already. But you know, sometimes um, you know sound sound editing software or whatever is it's it's intuitive once you've worked out how to use it but the answers aren't always easy to find if you run into a brick wall which i did 2 days ago um, i was trying to develop some work with Andy Butler and we we spent like 2 hours trying to i was just trying to get a midi keyboard to correct to to connect to contact player in reaper and i couldn't do it I can connect it to Contact Player outside Reaper but you know and it just became something that on the day I couldn't solve and so I was stuck mm. you know we weren't able to explore certain ideas and that's kind of a very practical example of like you know but getting stuck around technology is definitely mm. like a real a real sometimes creative block for me and also Andy said he feels the same mm. you know
1: How and when do you title your compositions and how do you feel about the process
0: Hmm. Um, I title the pieces generally at the end. Occasionally I might have something in mind earlier on. Um, I'm, I actually don't really like the title that I gave to the new North piece. It was a last minute thing cause I, I wanted to write some program notes, but didn't have a title yet. So it was really an afterthought, but, um, yeah, I think titles can be evocative. Um, and Particularly if they point to um, an orientation towards art making that is somehow extra musical. I think a great example of this is actually another piece, New North, presented by the Phonetic Orchestra, which was originally composed by um, Andy Butler but adapted by the group um, as they worked. And it was called, it's sort of very, very, um, um, you know, kind of tamperly rich music, lots of sort of long sounds. But it's called um, uh, Portmanteau Jacuzzi, or Jacuzzi Portmanteau, Portmanteau Jacuzzi, I think, Um, which I I, I mean, I love that title. It's so playful, but you might not pick that up from from the music itself. But but for me, that actually adds, you know, quite a lot to how I think about the work, you know. Um, Yeah, I might leave it there.
1: What's your relationship with the listener? And does the idea of the listener's experience, whoever that listener might be, inform your compositional process? Mm. I'll add a little addendum to that. Yeah. And who is that listener?
0: Who is that listener? Um, that's actually the hardest part to answer. <laughs> um, so I, th- I, I think there's a couple of angles in answering that question. One thing is, and I'll, I'll maybe start broadest, and that is that, you know, whenever you're in a community of people or a scene, there are certain types of um, of aesthetics or approaches which um, are trendy at any particular time. And that, you know, of course, that shifts as people come and go and people's tastes change. but um, But there's always a the pool of what is trendy when you make music, however much you might try to resist that. Um, And um, and that can be difficult when what's trendy isn't authentic for you. Um, You know, I, I try not to have my you know my creative choices driven too much by that, but I'm I'm certainly aware of how my work you know does sit amongst other people's work or um you know occasionally might be strategic about how i want it to sit among other people's works and and it's hard to say in exactly what that or what way that um that influences the work itself but it's definitely a factor and it 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 does it does pull the work in a particular way um on a sort of more you know interpersonal level though than the work uh, i i am thinking about the the listener as i compose but i'm not Ever thinking about what the listener might want to hear, um, because I don't know what they want to hear, you know, and I have no um, interest in trying to compose a piece um, for a particular listener. Thinking about what they might want to hear, because in the end, that's a it's a surefire way to create music that doesn't feel right to you, you know. Um, you only have your own set of judgment and your you know your own. Um, Musical background to draw upon when you compose. So, um, you know, but I suppose then the way that I think about the listener might might be um, kind of hinted at. It's and my response earlier when I was talking about the types of intensities of different you know different pieces. I suppose that's that's the sort of stuff I think about in relation to an audience. Um, And uh, what was the addendum again? It's a bit I didn't want to answer, but I will. (laughs)
1: it was who is that listener oh who
0: is that listener well um you know i I think that actually the new north piece is maybe an interesting one to talk about in that respect because um, the life drawing element to some extent is strategic in that it provides a way into the music for someone who doesn't already have a connection to that way of making music Um, so in a sense it's it's designed with accessibility for a listener in mind um you know i i often think that that my um my best and closest listeners will tend to be colleagues and friends um and other people in the music scene who um who i might not know but who who are you know aware of the work that i do and have done over the years um but I think it's a shame if you then silo yourself into into those sorts of communities and don't try to reach different people with your music and um, and so the the life drawing angle then is um, I, I suppose a way of providing providing a way in a way of experiencing this music which is. Um, you know, it can be quite deep, but like you said, you know, the gaze has shifted a little bit away or softened, to, you know, towards the music in the process of, of um, you know, directing attention elsewhere. And and I did get really good feedback, actually, from um, a couple of friends of um, Andy, or at least the feedback made its way back to me, that that they actually really enjoyed that interaction of of drawing and, and found that to be a very engaging way of, of experiencing this music. And, you know, these, these were friends who were... Um, uh, you know, not, not musicians by trade, you know. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. It does. That was a fantastic answer. Thank you. you. Thank you.
1: To wrap up, Joe, do you have any projects that you're working on at the moment or the upcoming that you'd like to talk about? Mm,
0: um, I do. Um, I've got, um, I've just done a, a couple of days of development with Andy Butler um who is one of the other organizers of new North and a good friend of mine um and we are in the very early stages of developing some um music for um piano keyboards um some electronics i think as well um and we're you know we're still working out exactly what that's going to be but um but I'm sure that will you know that will find its way into the world in the next year or so so um Long time scales, I think. Um, I'm also about to develop some more work with Tim Green um, in the next week, which is um, uh, probably using some similar kind of processes to the New North piece, actually. But um, but yeah, sort of duo music developed through improvisation and recording. Um, and um, I'm just thinking what my I don't know if I have a lot of performances in the near future. Um, later in the year. Um, there will be a premiere of a piece I'm writing for the Australian Art Orchestra. Um, I have got one of their Market Street commissions, um, and that work, um, which um, I can't remember what I called it. This is one example where I did actually write the title before the the, the piece, um, in the context of an application. You know, I was. Um, when I was applying for that commission, I, I had actually de- you know designed a concept for the piece, but, um, but that will be um, premiering as uh, uh, amongst two other um, new commissions as well at the substation on July fifteenth, um, and uh, I'm really looking forward to that. It's it's a, a work that we did the development for that towards the end of the last year, and um, uh, and. Though the work isn't complete, you know, we kind of wrestled it into a shape that began to sound like a piece of music and, you know, very, very promising, I think. So um, I just wonder if I'm missing anything. I think they're the main
1: things at this stage. Great. Well, Joe, thank you so much for, for having me. Oh, my uh, it's, pleasure. It's, 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 I feel funny as a guest host saying that, but um, <laughs> um, it's been a pleasure. My pleasure as well. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to my chat with Stephen. A lot more of me talking on the podcast than in most episodes, so I, I hope that was interesting for you. I will remind you that we have upcoming events. We've got our next concert, Veils, which is at Brunswick Mechanics Institute on June the 8th, beginning at 7.30pm. So don't forget to visit our website, newnorthmusic.online, or keep an eye on those social media channels. That's New North on Facebook, or follow new underscore north underscore music on Instagram, And there you'll find links to tickets and any other information that you might need. I look forward to seeing you there, and until next time, goodbye.